we're turning aphid pee into bee vomit. There you go. Yeah. And selling it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is what we're putting in our, putting in our toast. <laughs> it's a delicious tasting honey. Tony, how hot is it? It is hot as balls. It's so hot, I almost forgot to record. Ugh. Yeah. All right. So, welcome to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast um, from the city of brotherly love, sisterly affection, and oppressing heat and humidity. Um, <laughs> we're being real. All y'all in like Mississippi are like, you guys are a bunch of wusses. Um, but we're just yeah, not to it, are we? Yeah, but remember, this is Urban Wildlife Podcast, and we are an urban area, one of the most densely populated, densely um, dense housing. So we have a heat island effect. It doesn't, like, cool off. We don't get a refreshing breeze. It's just hot asphalt no. concrete radiating heat back at you. So, you know, in spite of the heat, what I'll say is that when I was coming into my house and I was looking at our swamp milkweed patch in the downspout container garden, which is what you do when you're a gardener in the city, I saw a whole bunch of bombas, big, big bumblebees um, on those milkweed flowers in spite of it being like 100 degrees. So um, there are still some bees flying. Yeah, man. I want to get into some bombas, but I bought the bombas book. And I'm just like, I looked at it, and I was just like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to get that into identifying bumblebees. That is ridiculous. <laughs> is it like the big book of bombas? Did they just go with the, with the, the alliteration the whole way? Yeah, I wish. <laughs> it's just like every one has like a different pattern, like like, and each one has a different pattern, like different life stages or I don't know. It's just crazy. It's just like, yeah, never mind. I'm not. Well, we love them. And uh, on this episode, we're going to be, we're going to be hearing from some experts on bees. I think what I'll end up doing is chopping it into two parts. Um, first part, we're going to hear from. Oh my God, uh, Billy. I'm sorry. ADD. I want to make sure I don't forget. You said about, yeah. you said about alliteration. Well, guess what? Bumblebee, I identified the other day. What? The brown belted bumblebee. <laughs> Where was it? Uh, on a, the Echinacea that's in bloom at my environmental center. Um, awesome. I also saw a, not a bumblebee, uh, another type of bee called a bicolored aga postamon. Damn, you're just laying it on thick here with the bees, man. I'm, I'm impressed. Um, yeah. We will keep thinking of more bee alliteration, but we're going to hear in this episode, first part, I think we're going to do it with an entomologist turned bee entrepreneur in Australia named Tim Hurd. We're going to follow that up with a conversation with a Canadian entomologist and bee expert named Scott McIver, who's looked at a lot of like very urban-specific bee topics, uh, stuff that's relevant to me and Tony certainly is urban gardeners, urban native plant enthusiasts, urban bee enthusiasts, even if we're not going to be able to memorize all the bombas. Um, I think our listeners might recall the story of how I proposed to Angie in our backyard. Where maybe I, not, Tony. One of our frequent guests, Mike McGraw, 
and my really good buddy Dan helped me completely landscape my backyard. We have a backyard, but it was just like a mud pit because I had a dog there. I was like, why don't I spend a day with my friends and we plan out the backyard and spend a couple hundred bucks, you know, that I would have spent on something that would just go away on something we could enjoy for a couple of years. And maybe to leave a legacy, you know, we we planted blueberries and um, viburnums and hollies and native wildflowers and completely regraded our backyard and got some, you know, Adirondack chairs, I mean, plastic ones, but still, you know, they're cool. And um, had a fire going, she came back and she was crying and it was was amazing. So (laughs) my landlord's landscaper I guess doesn't understand what I did, um, even though it was just clearly delineated with beds, and he completely annihilated it with a wee whacker. Oh my god! I got to start from scratch. Oh, and that's not all cheap stuff that you put in there either. I mean, like he cut I down mean, blueberries that had blueberries on them. The landlord didn't compensate us, and you know we'll figure out what to do. The problem is it's. You know, we're in the middle of a heat wave, and it's really the worst time. It is the worst plant time. That. You can't plant those things until – all the stuff you mentioned, you can't really plant until the fall now. Probably. I mean, I could really, really try and water it heavily, but it, it, it would just – might not be worth it. Um, we'll, I'll, we'll think about it a lot. Um, but it's ridiculous. It just also makes it very clear that we need to, uh, you know, looking forward to owning a home. So, and then the second part, we're going to be joining an entomologist who studies bees in Philadelphia named Doug Sponsler, um, along with his, like, partner in bee research, a beekeeper named Dawn Shump, along with, and we didn't really credit her in the audio, she didn't really speak up much, but this is also an article I wrote for Good Magazine, it's out right now. You'll hear a little bit of voice in the background from one of the photographers, um, Margot Reed. Margot took some great pictures. Um, for that grid article, so check that out at uh, gridphilly.com. So, Tony, hey, we got some comments, right? Oh, yes. So we had a comment from uh, Clifford Halley. Great episode. I thought it was great how your guest, who had little to no experience with the issue, came to the correct conclusions once you read the literature. And this was about our deep dive into the cat literature called The Truth About Cats. You got a, a good email from one from someone you know from way back, if I remember correctly. Yes, Matt Sharp, who I think I believe has the first record for sandwich turn in Philadelphia. What's a sandwich turn? Uh, it's a type of um, crested turn. Um, it's known for having a black bill with a yellow tip, and you generally see them more in the south. Um, they live in the uh, subtropical and tropical Atlantic, but. It, Occasionally, you'll see them in New Jersey. I think they wander from their breeding colonies further south, and they'll show up in Jer- on the Jersey coast um, in the uh, in the late summer. Kind of a common thing occurs, like a post-breeding dispersal. Um, but a hurricane came through and pushed a lot of uh, coastal birds inland, and he found one, and I got to see it. But he's working in the Academy of Natural Sciences. Hey, man, hope you're doing well. I just want to let you know that I've been recently listening to your Urban Wildlife podcast a bunch, and I've been really enjoying it. I'm up in down East Maine for the summer working for the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife on the state's breeding bird atlas. For the last few days, I've been listening to the podcast during my early morning drives around the state. Just graduated from UVM a few weeks ago, and since I started working independently in Maine, I've noticed that one thing I miss most is informed and fun discussions about wildlife-related topics. The dialogues and back-and-forth banter 
hey, hey, on your podcast, remind me so much of the conversations my wildlife bio friends would have, and even on some of the same topics. So here's to our banter. If you have other topics you want us to cover, or if you want to chime in about what you think about the podcast, hit us up on Twitter at Herb Wildlife Cast. Find us on Facebook at UrbanWildlifeCast at gmail.com. Find our Facebook page. Leave some comments or thoughts there. And, uh, you know, we are pretty darn open to ideas, even content that listeners come up with. So pop us an email. Let's, let's come up with some stuff to feature from your hometown or someplace you've been traveling for the Urban Wildlife Podcast. So my name's Tim Hurd, and um, I'm an entomologist by profession and training. Um, I used to work for an Australian government research organisation, but now I've um, I've struck out on my own, and um, I'm I'm I run a small business uh, that is active in a range of 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 things such as education and and producing beehives um, and. We have a book as well, which we market. So, yeah, I'm having the time of my life um, just um, playing with my bees. <laughs> what's the What's the name of your book? The Australian Native Bee Book. So if you have a look on my website, Sugar Bag Bees, then there's a link to our book website, and there's quite a few pages from the book which you can view on that link. I thought I'd ask for a quick picture of what bee fauna is like in Brisbane, you know, what's native, what isn't, what do people see in their gardens, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Brisbane is a coastal subtropical city. Maybe it has a climate similar to uh, Florida. Um, so it's very warm in, in summer and, and winters are very mild, uh, very, very humid. And uh, we have a rich bee fauna. We have well, no one's actually counted how many bee species we have here, but where anyone does a, a local fauna, pretty much anywhere in Australia, they come up with a number that's around 100 to 200 species. So we have 2,000 species on the continent, um, but in any one particular area, a sort of 100 species would be a sort of common number. They're mainly solitary species, as is the case in all parts of the world, that the bee fauna is dominated by solitaries and then you have some semi-social species and then you have our highly social stingless bees i guess an element of the australian bee fauna that's unique and it's reflected pretty much everywhere is a dominance of a family of bees called the calitidae which are only a small family in other parts of the world but the dominant family here uh, they're, they're very pretty bees. They're often black with uh, yellow markings, but they're often very small as well. So you don't really get to appreciate their, their beauty by looking at them just with the naked eye. You have to, you have to put them under a microscope. Um, but if you do that, you're, you're struck by the, the enormous beauty of them. They are solitary, so a single female goes about her business on her own. She doesn't cooperate with other females to build a nest. She's uh, entirely uh, a single mum, so uh, after mating, she builds a nest and often in a hollow stem, uh, and she will stock some cells with nectar and pollen from flowers and lay eggs and close those cells. She'll have no further contact with her offspring. So it's a typical solitary bee lifestyle. What is the non-native bee fauna like? The non-native bee fauna of uh, of most of Australia is is very small. Actually, we have very few introduced bee species in Australia. 
we have obviously the European honeybee, which is pretty much everywhere. It's colonised the, so it's kept um, in large numbers by beekeepers, but it also goes feral, as it does in most parts of the world where it's kept. And uh, so it's it's in our forests, it's in all parts of the country, except maybe the most driest parts of central Australia. So that's everywhere. And then in the very south of the country, in Tasmania and Ireland part of the country, there's, there's a European bumblebee that was introduced, so we certainly do not see that in Brisbane. And then there's a bee from Africa called the African Carter bee, which is an interesting thing that uh, makes a very unique nest. Uh, we, that's become quite common as well. Um, and that's about it. There's, one, there's two other introduced species, but they have very limited ranges at this point. So basically everything you see apart from honeybees is a native bee species. It goes against the usual invasive stories that I hear out of Australia. Yeah, whether you're talking about animals or plants, I know there was a point marked a few years ago where the number of recorded plant species introduced into Australia exceeded the the native species. So not just introduced, sorry, the number of, of plants, of exotic plant species that have become naturalised in wow. Australia is greater than the number of species that occur here um, naturally. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite shocking what, what we've done to the natural environment here. Um, but in the case of bees, no, it's it's a good it's a good news story. So of all the different groups of bees in the world, the two that are most social are the honeybees and the stingless bees. And stingless bees really are just as highly social. They're, they're, the complexity of their social behavior is as well developed as it is for honeybees. There are many aspects of the social behavior, behavior of stingless bees that resemble honeybees, but then there's some striking differences as well. So, you know, the caste system is an example of a similarity. There's just one queen per nest who's got this greatly enlarged abdomen that's full of ovaries and she pumps out hundreds of eggs per day. She does pretty much all the reproduction of the nest. So that's the same for honeybees and stingless bees. And then you have all these worker bees who are basically sterile. Um, there are exceptions to that, but they basically don't lay any eggs at all. They just labor away doing all the work in the colony, uh, not so that they can leave their own offspring, but so they can help their mother rear more of their siblings. Um, so this, um, this reproductive division of labor is common. Um, complex, com complex nest architecture is also common. So honeybees build these vertical combs out of wax. Uh, stingless bees also build complex nest structures, but they're different. Uh, so typically um, a difference, for example, is that stingless bees have two basic types of cells, a very precisely constructed small cell for rearing their young, and then a very differently structured and much larger pot for storing their food. Now, if you know the biology of honeybees, you'll be aware that they use these same hexagonal cells both for rearing their young and for storing their food. But stingless bees use separate structures. And so to be clear, these are coming from different families of bees. Sorry, some different family late night. <laughs> different families of bees. And so these are, it's a case of sort of converging evolution. Yeah, that's, that's precisely correct. So they are not different families, but they are different um, groupings that we call tribes. Uh, 
Um, and what we believe is that they've been separated for a long time. Their common ancestor was probably around 70, 80 million years ago. So they have been evolving on their own for a long time. That common ancestor was what we call a primitively social species. So some of the 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 basic um, some of the basic biologies involved in social life had evolved in the common ancestor of the stingless bees and honeybees, and so that's probably why today they share some of the basic social behaviours. But because they've been evolving in isolation for so many millions of years, more the fine detail of social life as they've as they've evolved. Um, have uh, have 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 become different, but there's been convergence too, as you say. Wow. Okay. Um, Eighty million years it strikes me as an amazingly long time. It puts us back in the Cretaceous, I think. So bees probably evolved in the early Cretaceous about 120 million years ago, um, but then this this social life got going relatively early, really, and it, it's it's seen, and we know that from the fossil record because the um, the, first, the oldest bee fossil is a stingless bee, and and we know that it had social life because it's clearly a worker. It, it's uh, you can these are these are fo- these are full fossils. These are you know three dimensional fossils preserved in in amber, full body fossils, not not flat ones. So you can make out a lot of detail in the structure of the bee, and you can see that it's a sterile worker. So this social life had evolved. A long time ago, and quite early in the evolution of the bees. So, when you say they're stingless, um, you mean that this is literally they cannot sting you, or that it's a kind of innocuous, not much of a sting. Literally, they cannot sting you. So, if you dissect one of these bees, you can find a vestige of a sting. You can find a remnant of a sting, uh, but it's a very small organ and it's completely non-functional. Something I noticed on your website, and it seemed to be connected to one of your colleagues, but I was wondering if you could talk about what Be Aware Brisbane is. Okay, sure. One of my colleagues has established a um, uh, kind of an organization in which um, he he's very involved in um, in school education, so he does a lot of that. So he's he's very much into, into public education, uh, but he's also very concerned about the correct information getting out. There's a lot of misinformation around about bees. I mean, if you read the media about bees, there's really a lot of errors in the sort of stuff that they typically report. And uh, Toby, who runs Be Aware Brisbane, is is devoted to attempting to correct some of that misinformation. You mentioned you've gone into business. I know about the book. What else do you guys do if people in Brisbane or, or elsewhere in the neighborhood are, are interested in stingless bees? Yeah, so one of the main things we do is selling hives. We breed large numbers of hives and we make those available to people. Um, my aim is to utilize these bees more in agricultural crop pollination. But at the moment, the market is primarily kind of a hobby market, a pet market, if you like. It's people who just want to keep a beehive in their backyard or even on their veranda because these bees are stingless you can put them uh, right you know onto the veranda or patio of your of your home or even apartment so they do very well in urban areas and particularly suburban areas um, and people love them and you know if, the, if you're doing a bit of a backyard thing and you've got you know 
chickens and a veggie garden and a worm farm and maybe a, a frog pond or, you know, the, uh, if you're really involved in introducing animals and plants into your yard and enjoying that connection with nature, then a stingless beehive makes a wonderful addition to that. And so can you get any honey from them? I was, I've noticed on your website you referred to uh, getting wax and, and sugar bag from the hives. Um, what does that mean? So sugar bag is honey. It's, the, it's a kind of an indigenous term, even though it's clearly of English origin. It is a term that the indigenous people in particular use to describe the bees and the products from the hive, including the honey. So yes, you do get honey. These bees make a very interesting honey. So it's different from honeybee honey. It's kind of runnier and more acidic, but it has an tr- amazing flavor and it's very sought after. And uh, people love it. Uh, you, you do only get very small amounts from a hive. So for example, just yesterday I was shooting for a, a story on a TV program um, on public TV called Gardening Australia. And uh, we went to the garden of, of one of the um, the guys who, who who gives who talks on this uh, TV show, and we split a couple of his hives and we demonstrated that for camera. But um, then I I said, well, why don't we ex- attempt to extract the honey from one of these hives? They're designed to to do that as well as propagation, and we got um, nearly a kilo. So what's that? Two pounds of of honey out of this hive. Some of your listeners might be might want to know, well, can you get them in the U.S.? And I'm I'm sure you know you you're aware that you can't, but they are in, in Central America. So, um, you know, next time you're going on a holiday to Mexico, um, you know, look into it and you might be able to visit a, a stingless bee farm down there. Uh, my name is Scott McIver. I'm, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Toronto in Scarborough. That's in the city of Toronto in Canada. Um, I study urban ecology here in Toronto um, and thinking about biodiversity and design and design for biodiversity. And so studying bees and, and their community structure and their important services they provide has been uh, uh, really fitting for this uh, overarching interest of mine. Again, thinking about how biodiversity should be integrated into the urban form. How did you get into the urban bee business or urban ecology business? I was actually always really interested in invertebrates in the ocean, like crabs and shrimps and so on. Uh, quickly, that moved me into kind of terrestrial environments through my kind of academic teaching. And I became very interested in insects and, of course, their interactions in the environment. Bees were a natural fit for me, again, being so diverse, uh, interacting with flowers. And uh, what's interesting about this interaction between plants and pollinators is the that process that interaction amounts to what is, you know, ecosystem functioning, thinking about seed set and fruits and uh, the reproductive success of plants and of bees. And so, you know, I tend to think of myself as a community ecologist, and there's no better system than to study the uh, diversity of interactions between plants and pollinators. What kind of diversity do we see in cities? And I guess this is, set it up counter to, to two other standards. One is compared to what you might see outside of cities, but then also um, what you might see in contrast to what an urbanite's expectation of, let's say, pollinator diversity might be. There's uh, kind of contrasting observations that are being made in cities around the world as uh, certainly bees come to the forefront in terms of uh, 
you know, what people are experiencing in nature and uh, certainly uh, popularity. You know, bees are declining. People want to uh, study bees or are interested in their patterns. And this has led to a, a bevy of kind of studies looking at bee diversity in cities and outside of cities, with some finding there is no difference, others finding uh, cities to result in declining bee populations or certain kinds of bees, and other uh, studies actually finding cities potentially as a refuge for, for wild bees. You know, cities being heterogeneous, lots of public and privately managed green spaces, you know, gardening being one of the most popular hobbies in North America, and certainly all of the infrastructure that we find in cities, old buildings and wooden fences and so on, create a whole uh, range of different conditions that would be highly attractive for some bees, but certainly less attractive for others. So um, with respect to your questions, do we see higher diversity in cities than outside of cities? Sometimes. And it depends on the context that res relate to uh, you know, potentially the amount of green space or how cities are managed, the age of the cities, the size and population density and so on. But I do have to say that even within cities, um, it can be quite shocking for uh, many people to first understand that there's more than just honeybees, that there are legitimately tens of thousands of species of bee around the world. And in any one city, you may experience dozens or even hundreds of different bee species. Um, and so in our lab, we're really interested in, in kind of what local and landscape factors are implicated in urban bee diversity um, and how we might be able to think about those factors in landscape planning and design, such that if you go to any one place in a city, you may experience multiple species of bees and all of the interesting kind of aesthetic and educational opportunities that emerge from that. So bees are a really great uh, organism to study in cities when we're trying to convey not only the importance of biodiversity to people, but simply what it looks like. Is there a bee that you have found, let's say in Toronto, that is impressive or special to you that you wish people paid more attention to? I got a few, kind of. You know, the first thing is that the majority of bees in cities, they nest in the ground. And so I give lots of talks to horticultural societies and gardening groups and so on. Then they often ask, you know, what is something, where should we be thinking next, you know, or even today uh, in terms of how to, how to help bees in cities? And the first thing I often say is to uh, think about what's beneath your feet. You know, we often say in Toronto that about 75% of our bees nest in the ground and about 75% of those bees, we don't know where they nest or what soil conditions uh, uh, you know, what factors are impacting where they nest. We can plant lots of flowers for food, but we're often omitting or ignoring the nesting requirements and the nesting conditions of a lot of these native wild bee species we're trying to support and promote in cities. And so thinking about tilling and paving and uh, lawn and even artificial grass, which is becoming more common, all of these are going to greatly impact where ground nesting bees nest, which again, amount to a large proportion of our diversity. So my first point would be to for people to be thinking more about ground nesting bees. But my favorite bees are actually leaf cutter bees. And these, for the most part, are cavity nesting bees. They nest in plant stems and old logs. And in cities, they even nest in nail holes and other little kind of dark and dry holes that uh, occur in infrastructure. And one of my favorite bees, which I found to be shockingly very common in the city of Toronto, so what we would call an urban winner, is a small species, it doesn't have a common name, of course, Megachile campanula. 
This is a resin-collecting bee. It collects pine sap. It's found in Philadelphia, and it's found all throughout southern Ontario. But interestingly, we found it in great abundances in the city of Toronto. Now, pine trees have been planted as a you know, trees in parks and so on, but rarely are we planting coniferous trees as street trees, for example. And so I'd be concerned about the potential limiting factor of their nesting materials becoming increasingly unavailable as kind of our, our kind of uh, uh, coniferous trees age in the city. And just one, you know, other unique observation we found is we found this bee that collects pine sap in Toronto. We actually found examples of it collecting window caulking right, from the edges of windows, so plastic <laughs> material in place of the natural, sappy, gooey material that they normally collect to uh, construct their nests. Do you have so, any you know, idea this, if that affects their a, nesting success? Well, actually, what we found is those bees that were encased in that uh, plastic uh, um, uh, window caulking, they emerged just fine. Huh. And so is this a mistake, you know, or is this, a, you know, are we are we verging into a time where, uh, bees might be utilizing, you know, artificial materials in place of their natural nesting materials. We also found leafcutter bees using plastic shopping bags, for example. Oh so my. is it a mistake? Is this a bad thing? Or is this an interesting good thing? I, well, we don't know. But nonetheless, when we actually really look at these bee species and what they're doing in our environments, we often find, you know, new, new knowledge for science. So what we learn in cities can actually inform the whole field. This is interesting. It, well, it, uh, I have been trying to to do better at identifying the quote unquote other bees in our garden. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I'm not very good at it. I we had this well, one funny incident where I, I I grabbed some what to me looked like a honeybee sized um, all black bee, and uh, I got it in a jar. I popped it in the refrigerator. Um, I got sort of our our sort of cheap dissecting scope out um, and plan to get a closer look at it. And the thing, even though it was in the refrigerator for a couple hours, um, it woke up within about like a minute of being out. <laughs> and so we, um, wow, so we ch yeah. chased it around the dining room. And that was the, the most recent time we tried to do that. Um, well, if it was just a refrigerator, yeah. And it was at a, you know, five degrees or something the the bee would just kind of fall asleep for a little bit. Right. Because right. Yeah, bees are cold-blooded like a fish or a frog. You know, unlike humans, we have a coffee or a snack and a bird eats a worm to get energy. A bee needs to be warm. Sure. And so it's really important when you're, you know, going bee watching in cities or looking for where uh, bees might be congregating, they're often uh, nesting in places that experience full sun in the morning because they need to warm up in the morning so they can go and pollinate. Yep. And I, I have uh, been spotted, maybe it was a couple years ago, but we put in a... Um, a, a we have a very small when I say garden it's like maybe 20 by 8 feet it's not very big it's a row house kind of neighborhood in Philadelphia and um, we put in flagstone paving in our in our garden um, and the next summer I spotted some small black and yellow I'm still not sure if it's a wasp or a bee um, sort of uh, had made a hole and was sort of making trips in and out of the hole in the sand in between the paving stones um, yeah and I had that moment of realization that we had incidentally created um, some kind of ground nesting wasp or bee. Uh, yeah, well, it could have been either. And there's lots of, you know, we could do a whole podcast on why why wasps are important in cities too. But let's just stick to bees for today. Sure, but, sure. You know, that bee that you saw, um, I in, immediately think of a bee called Hylictus ligatus uh, or Hylictus uh, rupicundus is another one. And these are sweat bees 
they're medium-sized sweatbees, but they tend to do really well in cities. Um, and uh, the, the first one I mentioned will often nest under sidewalk pavers or other large pieces of flagstone because the nest will get warmed up in the mornings because that flagstone is absorbing all that solar radiation. Um, you know, in, in cities, one of the things when you think, okay, what could we do for the, for the pollinators is, well, put more plants somewhere. You know, rooftops seem like a, a great place to put plants. Um, what have you found in terms of bees utilizing the, or not utilizing, uh, the plants that people put on green roofs? Uh, yeah, so in Philadelphia, certainly there's lots of green roofs uh, that have been constructed or are slated for development. And similarly in Toronto, we actually have the first green roof bylaw mandating green roofs on all new buildings of, you know, certain limitations. So we've got hundreds of green roofs in the city of Toronto now, to the point now where we would, uh, uh, we could even identify them as a unique uh, habitat type or a form of urban green space, green roofs. Of course, they're vertically isolated from the ground level, and some green roofs are found on short buildings, right, two to five stories, and certainly some green roofs are found on really tall buildings, like 20 or 30 stories tall. You know, we know a lot about uh, the foraging distances of bees based on their body sizes, and also from research that's been done in agricultural systems, you know, between isolated patches of habitat and so on. So we know a lot about how bees respond to habitat isolation and distance between flowers and so on. But we don't really know too much about how that is uh, implicated in a vertical isolation condition, right? So um, when we plant a green roof, we're often planting green roofs with a variety of plants. Uh, many of them are flowering plants. And when we're trying to approach the need to conserve wildlife, including bees, using like an all-hands-on-deck approach, we want to be greening the city as much as we can. Of course, we get lots of other ecosystem functions we derive from that, like water capture and cooling and stuff like that. But again, um, many might suggest that green roofs could act as habitat for pollinators because of all the floral resources. And certainly, we have anecdotal evidence of bumblebees 26 stories high on a skyscraper in New York City collecting pollen and nectar. And, and we do find a lot of other, you know, medium to large size body bees visiting green roofs for food. The question is, is whether or not green roofs might act as also a nesting opportunity for bees. And that's what we tested in uh, some work we did here in the city of Toronto, where at about uh, 25 or 30 green roofs, we set out what are called bee hotels. And what bee hotels are, are essentially a collection of dark and dry holes that are used by cavity nesting bees, which remember I mentioned ground nesting bees are about 75% of the bees. 25% or so are cavity nesting bees. They nest above the ground in dark and dry holes. We so can this set is these... including your, your leaf cutter bees that you... That's right, yeah. Right. Leaf cutter bees, mason bees, uh, cellophane bees. There's a few other uh, bees, wool carter bees, uh, a few others that your audience might be familiar with. And uh, we do find that cavity nesting bees tend to do better in cities than ground nesting bees because of the preponderance of dark and dry holes in infrastructure. Nonetheless, we set these uh, bee hotels up on rooftops of all different heights. And what we found was that we saw a decline in colonization with heights, which was what we expected. But what we also found was that um, with increasing height, those nests that were started were actually incomplete. So a bee would start a nest, but then they would abandon it. That abandonment could have come from, you know, the higher likelihood of death from crashing into a window from a wind gust or 
Uh, perhaps they abandoned it because they realized quickly that uh, it's too much work to go up and down the side of a building if some or all of your resources are occurring, you know, in this vertically isolated manner. And so um, we basically uh, were able to show that around five to seven stories is optimal uh, for the maximum kind of upper edge of where we want to be integrating nesting habitat. But by and large, putting flowers out on green roofs at any height will likely provide some benefit. Of course, there's going to be some upper limit, but we haven't been able to do that research just yet. Um, Were you but, able to but, see to what extent that, that, I mean, this might be beyond what the, the scope of your study, but um, if you have higher buildings, you have multiple higher buildings in proximity, do they end up getting used, I don't know how to say, say this, I guess laterally um, by bees? Right. You know, we weren't able to actually test that in our, our study system, but a colleague of ours in Switzerland, Sonia Bracker, she was able to do some work um, where they looked at over 40 green roofs and 40 ground level sites. And they looked at um, highly mobile insects like bees or weevils, like uh, uh, flying beetles. Sure. And they contrasted that with some uh, lower mobility uh, insect species or groups. And what they found is that green roofs could actually act as stepping stones for highly mobile species like bees across the landscape, right? So like you mentioned, uh, could green roofs act as like a ladder up to higher roofs? Maybe. Could green roofs act, uh, you know, horizontally across a landscape that's quite complex? Possibly too. But what's really exciting for me in the realm of urban ecology, and especially that which is relevant for wild bees and bee diversity and their movement and their ecosystem services, uh, there's still so much work to be done. It's a really exciting time. You know, one thing we're thinking a lot about uh, in urban e ecology and, and uh, cities is invasion biology, right? The movement of, of species that might outcompete native species uh, in these environments and we do find that cities tend to have higher levels of invasive species in plants and mammals and birds, et cetera. Yep. But this yep. also includes bees. Now, what's interesting is only about 1% of all the bee species in all of North America are not native to North America. It's this weird quirk. I don't know why. But we do find more non-native bee species in terms of abundance in bee samples in cities versus outside of cities. And so one, uh, actually a few bee species were really uh, becoming a little bit alarmed about in cities uh, uh, we need to be aware of. So even in Philadelphia and here we have one bee called Megachile sculpturalis, the large resin bee. This is a very large bee. It's very uh, uh, foreboding. It looks humongous. But what it does is it can actually excavate and eject uh, carpenter bees from the nests that they make into wood. Now, large carpenter bees are native bees. They're ubiquitous in urban environments. And some have even argued that they're only found in human infrastructure now because they really love like two by fours, like wood that they can bore into in our awnings, our sheds, under benches and ladders and docks. Yeah, these guys now, are these bees, the, the they star of the, the autumn for me. I, I find there's, there's a few patches of, uh, I guess, a heath aster in a vacant lot near my house. Yeah. Um, and I can, it's sort of the, 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 they seem to be the last, the last bees hanging around are these absolutely really? enormous carpenter bees who even like yeah. October and well into October will be there hitting those heath aster. Wow. I wonder if those are actually, well, you know, they, there could be a lot of different things, but certainly possible. But 
you know, uh, when we we have these bees that are emerging uh, in cities and we need to do our due diligence by monitoring, surveying, making observations and sharing information on like citizen science sites like like iNaturalist or others that allow us to really start to track the spread of invasive species like Megachylis sculpturalis. Yeah. Of course, another big issue we have is um, public education around which bees require saving. And in cities, we <laughs> see a great increase in the number of hobbyist honeybee keepers. And certainly honeybees have a place, sure, but we need to be mindful of where we spend our time and energy and funding, yeah. uh, which bees we should be focusing in on. And I don't know if I have an answer yet, but I think that the answer will be wild bee diversity. Something that, that I wish people thought of more is is how much demand there is for dead wood real estate, you know? Absolutely. You know, and that's, you know, the, the kind of temporal change that we see and even the, uh, the cycle of a dead log in a forest or at the edge of a road, you know, you have beetles moving in first and boring through that wood, creating those tunnels emerging. And then those tunnels being used almost like a second generation by cavity nesting bees. So there's this kind of, Spatial, you know, urbanization and temporal maintenance, public perception and so on that really play into how to effectively manage wild pollinators in cities. Yep. And so teasing these things apart, it's it's a really uh, exciting time to be doing that. Thank you very you know, much. Can I, can I just say one more thing really quickly, a little plug? Please go ahead, yeah. And that is uh, here in the city of Toronto, we're very fortunate by having a city council, an urban planning division that is really responsible. Uh, responsive and receptive to what we learn about the biodiversity in our city. And just coming up, we have what's called the Toronto Pollinator Protection Strategy, which goes to council in April. And we're really excited about this because we feel that the city of Toronto, we know more about our wild bees than almost any other city in the world. And we're using this pollinator protection strategy to put wild bees first when we think about maintenance of public and private space to support pollinators and biodiversity. So it's a real it's really exciting time to be here in Toronto. You're making me jealous, Scott. I'm already uh, jealous of, of Lights Out Toronto and now you've got this. All right. Um, and thank you very much for talking with me. Um, anytime. Hey, this is the end of part one um, of our Urban Bee episode. Please stay tuned for the second part.